we see ourselves more as industry experts mm -hmm. and but if it's a natural food or bev company that's 10 to 100 million in revenues we like to believe that we're the best guy for them and hopefully prove that to a few folks but you know to be able to make that claim we have to really know the industry welcome to the irresistible factor the podcast for brands in the health and wellness space who want to be irresistible not only to consumers but to investors and retailers here we talk to successful entrepreneurs about the inspiring stories that help them start and grow their awesome brands. And we also talk to investors, leaders in private equity, and retail buyers about what makes brands irresistible to them. Hi, Stu. Hi. How are you? <laughs> Good. Doing Good. well. Good. Would you? Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about brands and what kind of startups you work with. Um, but first, would you mind just giving a little intro about you and Green Circle? Yeah, um, Green Circle is, well, we're a boutique merchant bank, meaning that we have an investment banking division and we have a venture capital division. So the investment banking division focuses solely on what we call natural products, meaning food, beverage, supplements, products that are better for you, healthy um, CPG products that you might see like on the shelf at Whole Foods. And the principal investing division of the firm where, so let me go back and say, when we're playing investment banker, we're brokers, we're middlemen, right? And we're connecting capital from venture capital firms, private equity firms, family offices, uh, big companies. We're connecting that capital to growth stage companies that need money for growth. Um, sometimes talk about growth stage. What does growth stage really mean? Sure, sure. Um, for us, a typical client is if we're raising growth capital, a typical client would be like between 10 and 50 million in revenues. Um, we used to say 10 to 100, but the space has been so hot that you know a lot of those companies get acquired sooner. Mm -hmm. um, and then also half of what we do on the investment banking side is raising growth capital, but the other half is selling companies. So if a company that's been successful is looking to sell itself to some bigger food or beverage company, we help broker those transactions. And on the venture capital side, we act as principal investor where we're not connecting money with companies, but rather we are the money. And our limited partners who provide capital for us to invest on their behalf, um, we invest solely in food tech, meaning technologies, not you know packaged goods or brands that are disrupting the way that we make or distribute food. Um, so that that's a quick snapshot on the firm. Did I answer the question? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I knew about the venture capital side, but I didn't really know that it was that specific. So I was going to ask you, why don't you invest in everything? yourself but why um, don't we um <laughs> well i think for the same reason um that we're extremely specialized and like focused on the investment banking side i just believe in a rigid and extreme application of focus mm -hmm. uh, in everything one does in business and in fact most things you do in life it can't hurt um so on the investment banking side, I mean, for better or worse, you know, I mean, it's it's worked for us. I can't speak for what would be best for the next guy. 
Um, but being really focused in like the natural food and Bev world has enabled us to build a really good network and get to know folks and build deeper relationships than just, you know, it's a name on a list, um, which I think is hard to do if you're like, quote, a generalist. I mean, there's guys that, you know, do what I do who see themselves as bankers first mm -hmm. and might work across a number of industries or even like you said, just invest in anything. Um, and there are guys who do that and do that really well. We see ourselves more as industry experts mm -hmm. and like 99% of the companies out there, I'm not the right banker for, but if it's a natural food or Bev company, that's 10 to hundred million in revenues. We, we like to believe that we're the best guy for them and hopefully prove that to a few folks. But, you know, to be able to make that claim, we have to really know the industry really have a deep network with everyone who's, you know, important within that industry. Same thing on the investing side. Um, maybe even more important to have a focus because to be able to evaluate an opportunity to act as it's to act as their agent, right, is mm -hmm. one thing. To put, you know, our money in and be their partner is an even deeper commitment. And so I think the more focused you are, the greater your experience and understanding of the business, the industry, the sector, you know, the more effective, successful you could be. So we've chosen food tech for a variety of reasons. I, I happen to just think it's a huge economic opportunity. Um, the way that we make food doesn't work. You know, it's mostly very archaic and you know, a lot of the ways that we like manufacture and distribute food are 50 or 100 years old mm -hmm. in a world that's extremely dynamic and ever changing. And population growth just is outstripping the food supply. So we don't really have a choice, you know, like we have to make changes and make bring greater efficiencies, hopefully through technology to the way we do these things. And from change comes opportunity. You know, I mean, there's going to be trillions of dollars in value created, in my opinion, <laughs> in technologies that will improve the way that we make and distribute food. And I'd like to get a percent of that. You know, yeah. so <laughs> that's that's why our focus is there. OK, um, when you're thinking about brands, how do you evaluate whether they're worthy of investment or of you becoming their broker? Yeah, really, that's an easier question oh, okay. um, because the metrics, you know, by which we can judge the health or opportunity for a CPG brand of any kind, although in our case, in particularly a natural product CPG brand, a much more um, clear, much more quantifiable than it might be, for instance, for earlier stage technologies because a lot of the companies that are super interesting to us on the investor side may not even have revenues yet, mm -hmm. right? So it's trying to understand the technology, how unique it is, how defensible and scalable it is. And that's hard, you know, like it, it often requires real scientific expertise and that's why we have scientific partners, um, but that's not even your question. So on brands, much easier. Right. So the first thing is 
all of our metrics that we use to look at a brand to say, is that something, a company we'd want to represent, is really me just trying to look at it through the lens of what I think the average of my investor universe might think, right? Because we get, as middlemen, most of our compensation comes when transactions are done. Mm -hmm. 90% of my money is made only when we complete a deal. Yeah. So the most important thing for us, you know, if we're, if we're to get paid, you know, purely economic consideration is, can we get the deal closed? Yep. Right. So is it a good opportunity? Is the owner or CEO reasonable about what they're looking for? You know, the, the certainty of closure, the likelihood of getting a deal done is really important, you know, if we're going to earn a living. So the first metric for us is simply, does it, is it a big enough business that there's real proof of concept, which is important to institutional investors? Mm-hmm. And so we don't really, you know, work with like really true startups with that might be looking to raise money from like friends and family. Most of our investor network is more VCPE firms, family offices who are looking to write bigger checks. For them in this space, we've kind of landed on 10 million in revenues is sort of like the first filter. Yeah. You know, if it's under 10 million in revenues, it may be hard to fund. If it's over that, we're probably in the ballpark, you know, and, and I, I always say sometime, I always say sometimes, I sometimes say <laughs> or five million with a bullet where the bullet is literally, you know, like triple digit growth, mm-hmm. or true one of a kind product. I mean, you know, 10 million is kind of the minimum for what our network is looking for. But if I see a company that's six million up from two the year before, I know that's going to interest you know our our network. Mm-hmm. Um, but typically ten million. And then the real metric for is it a good CPG business and is it therefore fundable is unit velocity. I talk about this a lot because the industry talks about it a lot. When I go to raise money, whether I'm selling a piece of a company, in the form of a growth capital raise, or I'm selling an entire company to people that might want to acquire it, consumer investors have uniformly become focused, if not obsessed, on unit velocity. How many items for each SKU that my company makes, how many of those units do we sell per store per week? Because if I'm doing... 10 million in revenues, and I'm only in 3,000 stores, we're selling a lot of product, yeah. right? At those 3,000 stores. Now, I know as an investor, I give these guys some money to hire more salespeople, to make more stuff. If we go into 30,000 stores, we're going to kick ass. Yeah. Conversely, if there was a brand that was doing twice as much in revenues, 20 million in revenues, but they're in 30,000 stores, that could literally be a company on its way out of business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. velocity is really critical. And so that's it. We kind of will say 10 million is sort of a hurdle, you know, to know, okay, we should, this could be a fit maybe. And then we'll try to learn a little bit about unit velocity. 
And then comes like the secondary considerations and intangibles are things like, how much do I love the brand? Is there a mission? We're not like a B Corp or mission first, but everything I've done in my career is triple bottom. And we think a lot about our impact in terms of social and corporate responsibility. Mm -hmm. So every client we've ever represented at Green Circle, we're proud of. They make healthy products that are better for people than some of the legacy items that they might be working to replace. But many of our clients we're really proud of because not only are they working to generate a profit, but they have active programs to support, you know, initiatives for sustainability, educating poor kids, supporting indigenous local farmers in other countries. And, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like my favorite thing about my job is that I, I, I work in finance te technically, which means that we have an opportunity to make a lot of money. But I finally found a way to do that. In, in, I found a place in the finance, you know, universe to do that in ways where we can also actually do good mm -hmm. and, you know, be a tiny, um, you know, play a tiny part of affecting positive change in some of these things. So that's very rewarding. So that matters a lot to me too. Like if it was six of one, half a dozen of another, two brands with similar economic profiles, you know, but one of them is in a fully compostable package. Mm -hmm. The other's in a plastic bottle. One is a no brainer and the other one I got to really think about. Yeah. How much does that matter to investors? Do you think? It matters a lot. Yeah. Um, I think that it's become, you know, I talk about this a lot, actually. Um, I've been on wall street in one capacity or another for 30 years. And, um, and I know it's impossible to believe since I only look, I don't look at day over 29. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, but, you know, back in the 90s, they used to have um, a term. It was socially responsible investing was a term for like mutual funds or certain, you know, investment um, it, it managed products where all it really meant 25 years ago was we don't buy stocks of companies that we think are like what they used to call sin stocks, mm -hmm. which really just meant like alcohol, tobacco, gambling, firearms. So we're not going to buy, you know, uh, a casino stock or Philip Morris. <laughs> and the rest was basically the same. And what that really meant to investors back then was it's kind of the same as every other fund but you should probably expect shitty returns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I hope that's okay on your podcast. Good. I love it. Totally fucking cool. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so today that has changed quite a bit over the last 20 years. Um, there's been a huge movement toward true corporate responsibility, big companies and small, um, there are ESG and chief sustainability officers at most Fortune 500 companies, what used to be a weird thing to have went to a nice to have. And in the last three to five years, I think it's kind of finally gotten to a have to have. Um, I don't know about other industries, but I hang out and talk 
all day with people who are kind of like me. <laughs> and if you, the investors who are the leading investors in this space, investing in healthier products and natural food and Bev, I think different from 10 years ago, but today it's much more common that they totally care about those things than to not care. I think the question would be whether they as individuals, is it really part of their own individual ethos and worldview? Yep. Do they feel an obligation to serve that of their limited partner investors or even just the optics of being socially correct? That I can't speak for, but whether it's like genuine uh, as individuals or it's driven by outside forces like it's popular or it's important to investors, yeah. yep. I don't know. But most of the firms that we deal with on a regular basis, it's either a requirement uh, that's becoming, a, that's still a small portion, but it's becoming a bigger thing. What's known as impact investing. Mm -hmm. where it's literally a requirement for the fund that they only invest in companies that are doing good in the world, creating jobs or saving the planet. Um, it's becoming a bigger thing. But the number of investors in our space who are at least concerned about that and see it as a big plus, it's, it, it's getting, it's a majority becoming a vast majority. Okay. You know, when I have a brand that's in sustainable packaging or has some kind of environmental or social, you know, storyline as part of the brand architecture. I think it's great because I think it's an absolute plus to most of the investors that I'll, I'll solicit. Awesome. That's good. I mean, that's good progress. I think. Um, what do you think the biggest challenges that brands face are when they're looking for capital? There's so many brands now. I mean, it, it, there's so many. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you just asked a question that we could run a week-long conference on. Mm -hmm. um, if we're talking, put it this way, before I answered, you did. So if, we're, if you're asking the question in that context, is that a big problem? That's an easier question for me to answer. The answer is yes, in a big way. Um, so there's always been a lot of brands, right? But what we've seen happen in our industry, and I had this conversation with my partner. I have this conversation on a regular basis, but I had it with one of my partners this morning. When I started a natural beverage company in 2005, it's not like I was the only natural soda, mm -hmm. but I knew the other two. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and they were friends of mine. Yeah. Um, you know, or maybe there's a couple more, but there, there were not a lot. Today, over the last 15 years and, and more in the last five or seven, pretty much every single, uh, so I'm only speaking about my corner of the world, natural, yep. right? Pretty much every single category within the entire food and beverage industries, biggest industry in the world is food, um, where 10 or 20 years ago, there might've been one upstart you know, there was a Haines Celestial making natural soup 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And there was a Tom's of Maine making natural toothpaste yeah. 
that I used to buy in the 80s because it was the only one. Mm -hmm. It was the only toothpaste that didn't have chemicals that I didn't want in my mouth, right? But now every single category, there's countless brands that are, you know, running that playbook. So I would say 20 years ago, all you had to do was kind of look at a market opportunity and say, what's a big food or beverage category? And if you created an organic and or natural or otherwise innovative version of legacy food category X, you had a great opportunity because there's been a revolution in food for the consumer. And as they have more and more become sensitive and, and to the point now of demanding cleaner label products, um, all of these legacy brands, right, have been losing market share. Yep. A couple of years ago, I remember the stat I saw was of the top 100 CPG companies that sell food and beverage, 90 of them had lost market share that year, right? So basically all. Who are they losing it to? All to small and mid-sized startups and medium-sized companies that make a healthier version of what they, they've been making for 150 years. 20 years ago, if you were the only one looking for those, you know, lost market share dollars, you know, I mean, soda was a $70 billion category when I started in 05, and it was declining by around 1% or 2% a year. That meant a billion in sales was being lost every year by Coke and Pepsi. So if I could capture some of that, that could be really big business for a startup. Well, today, there isn't one or two or five natural sodas fighting for those crumbs that are being lost every year. There's so many that, yes, it's a problem. And so in every category, while it's true that the big legacy brands are losing market share, they're not losing it to one or two upstarts. There's a hundred startups that are climbing over each other to get to those scraps and the fact is 98% of them are going to have to go out of business how did they how did they be successful like how did they differentiate i don't know um i i think how do you decide which ones to take on if you have 100 or if you have 20 how do you decide which ones are the have the most potential great question and the answer is kind of hysterical i don't know anything i recognize that and i learned a long time ago that trying to predict consumer behavior, you can do that. <laughs> you do it better than anybody I know, uh, but nobody does it real well. I mean, every product P&G launched, they do lots of research and they yep. spend money. Most of them still fail, right? So, mm -hmm. so what we do is we don't try to predict. We just simply look at the data and see which one has already pulled it off. I have no ability to look at a hundred startups and say, this one might work for this reason. And this one might fail for that reason. Instead, I just talk to the ones that succeed, you know, mm -hmm. and it sucks. I mean, it's really hard. I mean, it doesn't suck. Well, it does because I, I root for all of them. Yeah. You know? Like I, I, I'm, you know, I feel emotionally like connected to entrepreneurs who like leave corporate America and particularly those who take a risk and, you know, bet the farm or the house yeah. and do it 
to make a product that's healthier for people. I feel huge affinity for all of them. I was one of them and I want them all to succeed, but that's just not how I make a living. So we let the consumer dictate who's already succeeded through, you know, adoption in the form of revenues over 10 million, proof of concept that the brand is strong and has legs in the form of that unit velocity. And we call those guys. What about brand? How important is brand? It's important, but you know, like I said, I mean, I'm literally just kind of jumping over brand analysis and simply just going to the winners. You know, like if it's if it's How do you 20, know if someone's gonna win though, if they're let's say they got to 10 million, right? And then how do you know they're gonna get to hundred million? How you how do you know? I don't, but two things. A, that's not my job. Okay. Right. My job is to play middleman. Mm-hmm. What I need to figure out is not, is this guy going to go from 10 to 100? What I need to figure out is, is there, is it possible? Is it plausible? And are there investors out there who think that he or she will, Uh and that with their partnership, maybe they will. And then I just play matchmaker. Okay. And then also, I'm not saying there's any certainty to it. I mean, a brand gets to 10 million and has great velocity or even 20 or 30 million, it's not like it's a billion dollar company yet. Mm-hmm. It's just more likely, yeah. you know, than somebody who is yet unproven. Yep. And do you think there's anything like we talked, we did iFactor with you at one point, there's predictive data in there. Does that help or does it only help to get investment, not help you make decisions? No, it, it does. It does. Yeah. And, and that's why I say like, I mean, trying to predict consumer behavior. I, I was being, you know, cute, but I mean, uh, I can't help it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, for Christie's huge audience, she and I are close friends. Um, but you, you know, you're looking just to get, it, it's not binary, right? Like you're just looking to get the most market intelligence. And mm-hmm. in my, in my business in investing, you know, if you could just be a few percent more accurate, Yep. A few percent more effective, that can be an enormous difference between success and failure or success and huge success. So, yeah, I, I was kidding Good when point. I said you can't predict consumer behavior. What I really meant is it's super, you can't do it, you know, perfectly. And it's really hard to do it accurately. But I absolutely believe that you have to try and use as many tools as you can. You know, so first you look at, you know, the most predictive tool is unit velocity and revenues because people vote with their wallet, right? Yeah. But then all the qual the qualitative insights that you could gather, you know, from different, you know, tools, you know, focus groups, all these different things, they're incrementally additive. Mm-hmm. Um, what I love about what you invented is that it seems to kind of combine both qualitative and quantitative attributes. And no, I don't believe that I factor, you know, your tool for anyone who doesn't know what that means. I don't believe that that can tell you this will work, this won't work. But I do believe that it can directionally say this is a little more likely, mm-hmm. or this is a little less so. And I think that in branding, that's hugely important. Yep. Um, anything else that you want to add? That's really interesting. First of all, I learned a lot, which is awesome. I didn't even know how. <laughs> very kind. Well, I did. 
Um, and it's so fun. Isn't it fun to be able to do this job that connects to what you really care about? I mean, I think that's so cool. It's awesome. Yeah, it, it is for me. Um, I actually say this all the time now. Like I worked, so I'm an artist and you know a little bit about me, but you know, I, I was a songwriter. I was in a rock band for a long time and was literally one of those kids who was delusional enough to think that this could be my job. And I tried really hard and, <laughs> you know, it, we had some moments, but it didn't happen. But throughout that entire time, you know, I was always in a band with like, you know, waiters and freelancers, but I worked on wall street and I had this like regular day job. And somehow I managed to do both of those things. But my day job, you know, for the first 15 years of my career, it wasn't like it was benign. I hated it. Mm -hmm. I never liked my job. And I just did it to try to, you know, pay the bills until I, you know, can make money, you know, playing the drums. And when, when that dream kind of came to an end, um, you know, I knew that I didn't want to continue to do that. So I quit and I started, you know, Snow Beverages, this natural soda company. And I mean, it was visceral, like my experience in the first weeks and months of running that startup, I just couldn't believe that this was my job. So awesome. Like it was so fun, you know, like I was inventing something and we were creating something and my two VPs were like two of my best friends. And we were like, you know, it was us against the world. And like, it was just so exciting and fun. And I was like, wow, you know, like, is it possible that if we were successful, I could even make a living doing something that I, I, I enjoy. And I found out that I couldn't with that job, you know? So <laughs> like we had a lot of fun and I, and I, I hung on for six years, but I didn't make it. I mean, you know, i my salary wasn't even what I needed to pay half my bills. So it, for me, I mean, it really took till I was like 50 years old before I managed to get what I have now, which is, you know, better late than never. I mean, now I have a job that I actually like, I mean, every job comes with its stress and bullshit and every day there's something that, you know, is stressful, but most of it I really like and some of it I occasionally love and they're, you know, for some, somehow I've managed to do it in a way now where I, I make a really good living doing something that I'm psyched to get up and talk about. That's incredibly lucky. And, you know, like I'm jealous of the folks who know what they want to do in college. And when they're 30 years old, they have a situation like that. It took me half a lifetime, you know, to figure it out, but I'm glad I have it now. And I will actually, maybe this is a good closing statement. Um, okay. I'll, I'll tell you that I tell my kids, I have 16 year old twins, as you know. Um, and I tell my kids all the time, I've probably quoted this like 50 times to them in their lives. Because my parents were like really traditional, driven, middle-class Jews. Like it was either like be a doctor, a lawyer, or don't ever come back here again. And, <laughs> and that was definitely not who I am. And that's not the way um, their mom and I approach my kids, which is we both actually work really hard to support them just to be and do whoever and whatever they want out of life. And so the quote I was going to say to you is, you know, you've probably heard this quote, you know, do something you love and you'll never work a day. Mm -hmm. And I've told that to my kids like countless times, like, you know, guys, like I've spent 30 years on Wall Street. I'm not someone who says money doesn't matter. I mean, it does mm -hmm. matter, right? Like 
I used to always tell my clients who I manage money for, you know, money should never be the most important thing in your life, but you know, it's top 10. Yeah. You know, like, so don't, don't let it fall off the list. Maybe it should be like six. Maybe for some people it could be three, you know, maybe it should be nine. I, I don't know. It's not unimportant. It's important, but it shouldn't be number one. And, you know, as you know, another cliche, like very few people on their deathbed ever say, I should have spent more time at the office. Yeah. Right. Like the bottom line is if you go into some career where you're going to make a lot of money, you know, doing something that really isn't your passion. Well, that's one life, you know, that you could create. If you made half as much money or even a third as much money doing something that you couldn't wait to get out of bed and go do. I don't know. To me, that just sounds better. Better life. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Brands finance and philosophy.